Well, you can turn over in your Bibles. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. Have you ever had a room or a place in your house that you wouldn't go? Maybe when you were growing up, there was a place that you just wouldn't go to. I know some little kids, if you watched uh, at Home Alone, you know, the basement was a place he didn't want to go to. But maybe there was a place in your house that you just don't want to go. Didn't want to go, attic. Maybe when you were young, there was a certain place that was there. And maybe even as you're older, there are some places that you just don't want to go. Maybe there's some place at work that you don't want to want to get near or some place that's outside. Can you think of a place that says, oh, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go to that spot. What is it that started that? What is it that caused you to not want to go into that room, into that place? Was it a story? Was it a sound? A perception? Whatever it was, it ignited some kind of fear on the inside of you. And fear always leads to limited or complete inaction. We're going to talk about this morning self-imposed limitations. That there are times we put limitations on ourselves, And as we've been discussing with you, that uh, the Lord showed me some, some time ago, months ago, about some things in the area of grief. And this is where it, uh, where it fits. I gave you the backstory up on Facebook. If you weren't there, you didn't see it. And if you just came out here this morning, you're not going to get it. <laughs> if you want the backstory on this, go back up there on Facebook and get it. If you can't get it on Facebook for whatever reason, find somebody who can. We're not going over all that again. But in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to read along with me on this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, are there more gracious ways for God to say this? How long after Moses was dead was Joshua expected to pick up and start going again? How much time did he give him for mourning? We'll get back to that. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. So everything I said, what I said to Moses here, it's falling back on you. You get it. Why, did, why is it that what God said to Moses fell back on Joshua? He started, he told, he told you the reason. Because Moses is dead. And the job still is out there to be done. Now, how many of you know in the New Testament, it relates some things to the promised land? To the rest to be obtained. Wouldn't you derive from that? That if God spoke words to Moses that passed on to Joshua, that the words that God spoke to Moses and Joshua would pass on to us if we still have a promised land to take and a rest to secure? Just a thought. You don't have to amen or anything. <laughs> Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites into the great sea toward <clears throat> the going down of the sun shall be your territory. 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, is it true that the Lord will not leave you, speaking of you, and the Lord will not forsake you? Then why is it we think that some people can stand against us? Why is it that we get in fear when certain people come against us? If it's true that no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. If you're going to quote the second half of the verse, should you not also quote and believe the first? Amen. <clears throat> well, he's just getting warmed up here. Verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their, to their fathers to give them. Be strong and a good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, when these guys are going into the promised land, how many of you can think that there might be a place that they may not want to go? Maybe some place has particular giants. Remember, there were some, some of the children of Israel who didn't do very well in taking their land. In fact, some said, we don't have enough. And so Judah gave, uh, gave them some of theirs. Caleb was one. He said, I want the, I want the giants in the mountain. Give me the tough area. But there's other people who backed away from it. Because they didn't believe. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people, you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. He's repeating himself, isn't he? That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded which your Muslim servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you, may <clears throat> that you may prosper wherever you go. Be strong and very courageous. Look at those verses. Look at those words. Be strong or only be strong. So of all the things you can focus on, what you've got to focus on right now is to be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do you know it takes strength and courage to do what God said? Cowards can violate it. But when God has given you an assignment, when God has given you a direction, when God has spoken his word to you, when God has given you a command in his word, it takes strength and courage to accomplish it. That the enemy has come along and he has sown fear into many of our lives, keeping us from doing what God has said. Sometimes we back off what God has said to do. Sometimes we feel that it's not important, that it's not all that great. We desire another assignment. <clears throat> but verse 8 says, "The book, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This book of the law shall not depart from your what? Now, many times we think other things here shall not depart from your thoughts. Now, that may be good, but that's not what he said. He said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, why does he say this book of the law? How many of you go around quoting the book of the law? The reason he says this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth is because all they had was the law of Moses. 
That was it. That was all the word they had to face Jericho, Ai, the five kings, all the different things that came upon them. That's all they had. And they won. (laughs) Now you've got the law, the prophets, the historical accounts. You've got the gospels, the epistles, the book of Acts. How much more do you have than they had? How much more? How many more cities like Jericho should we be taking down? If we would do something, be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. In other words, all the things that God spoke to you through Moses, do them. Don't fall from it. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Now let me reinterpret that little verse <coughs> little verse there for you. You are going along a way that has a path. It is a defined path. And it is defined when you veer off of it. Which means your path has what? Boundaries. And when you veer off to the right or to the left, it is known. You've just stepped over where you're supposed to be. And you see, when we step over where we're supposed to be and move out in the areas where we're not supposed to be at, we will not make our way prosperous, as he says, because we were not careful to do all that he told us. But if we do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, then you may prosper wherever you go. Now I go back to the, the word that I was, we based all this thing off of that I had from God. Now that wasn't just, you know, a word to just to, you know, to stay within these parameters to run. For me, it was a, there was a lot more healing involved than, than that. Because everything I did every day was painful. I mean, I, I went to the doctor. <laughs> and not the normal one. The one that specialized in things like that. I don't like going to the doctors. But I did. Because it was bothering me on a regular basis. For, for a lot of things, there, there was some stuff I just couldn't do. And so when the Lord spoke to me, and you remember what he said, now, it's not important that you know what he said, it's just important that I know what he said, but I tell you because that's what I have to, what I have to follow. Five to six miles a day, four to five days a week, and do some cycling. Now, he didn't put the limit on the cycling, but I have been shooting, you know, four or five days a week. That means that there's at least one day of cycling I ought to get. And so that's what I've endeavored to do. Now, I told you when I, when I first got that word back over in the summer, and I started to, the first word that came to me was no more than two miles. And I followed that. To the point I stopped at 2.00. My watch would, would, would track that. Uh, I would not go 2.01. No more than two miles. And I stayed with that. And then the second word came. Five to six miles. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sharing this story with you for a purpose again. I, 
I want to try and get you, get you into, into some of the thinking. If I can get you into my thinking, then it may help you to, in, in getting yours. And, the, you know, some of the things that we, <clears throat> we, uh, I do with this is um, when I go to prayer for you as a church, I, I pray about each one of you and some of the situations you face. I know some of the things that you, that you that I know some of you are facing painful things that I had. I know Miss Gladys had some painful things that would, would bother her. And sometimes I see her wince when she would be walking around. Miss Sharon had, had a, uh, some of her joints that were giving her trouble. And, um, and she had gone to the different, and I think about these, these kind of things. Uh, Miss Phyllis, uh, still think about them, even though they're not in the, this state anymore. But you know, the, some of the pain that she would have and, uh, some of the things that she was doing. And so I think about these things. And I want to see people get healed, uh, of, of these and, and, uh, and not be bound up by them. And these things are, are important for us to, to get through. So I, when I see th- situations going on in the church, you know, I press into God. God, what are we going to do on here? And, and what can we, we do for this? And um, now I had gone through an, uh, for another, another situation in the same hip, but it was a different situation. There was a stress fracture that was in there. And so uh, when I was going through that, uh, I was, you know, running was, was off. And um, we did the, the riding and the, the therapy and, and so forth. And um, while that was going on, you know, I still, I've had my running buddy now for a number of years. And, uh, and you know, I think we've been, been good for each other. But when I was down, I had to tell him I can't run for a while. <laughs> and I said, I have to just ride the bike. Do you know that he dusted off his bike? Fixed it up? So that he'd go ride with me? Now, I'm telling you that story for a reason. I'm not just telling you a nice little anecdote. It's, uh, it has uh, some importance to it. Because when, when God told me this over the summer, five to six miles a day, four to five days a week, and do some cycling. Well, I was doing the, uh, the, the prescribed mile, five to six miles a day. But there were, came a couple of days where John, and, and you know, John, he, can, he, he's, he was going for a goal like I have been going for in the past couple of years. We just both weren't on the same goal at the same time. Um, I was I was on a goal for a number of years, and I would run over uh, run the year, so it'd be over two thousand miles in the in a year. And so then he picked it up on the year that I couldn't do it, and he was going he was going gangbusters. He was he was getting there, and so for him to come out and run with me, I'm I'm limiting him. And so a couple of times after we had been running it a while, he said to me, "Do you want to go further?" <laughs> now, what do you think my answer is? Hot dog, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, um, but I, I, I would still remember that. I said, well, I'll just go a little bit further. And so I went to seven. I said, yeah, I'll do seven with you. But you see, here's what, what pulled me into it. There was some, um, I guess you can call it guilt or indebtedness. See, for, for, for quite a while, he had given up some of the things he was doing so he could take some time out and come out with me on the on the bike ride, and we could push each other like we do with the with the running. And so I thought, well, I don't want to just, you know, make him. I don't want to just take his, his stuff away. Yeah, I'll go extra. And so I did. And then it uh, it all fell apart for me in August when we were out and way on on vacation. I think I shared that with you. Uh, the pain got so bad that I I did one run two miles, and it hurt the whole the whole way. And we're walking around the parks, and even that hurt. And it, it was, you see, I, I stepped out of the, of what I was supposed to do. 
So I took some time off, kind of was forced into it there, but had some, some time off. And when we got back, now I went back with a vengeance. And since uh, it took me September to recover, August and into September, it's into September I was, I was getting back into it. It was almost full, full, fully back into it by the end of September. October, November, December, January, and now into February, every week but one was perfect. Every single, I mean, when I'm supposed to be out there, I'm out there. When I'm not supposed to be out there, I'm on the bike. When I stop running, it's 6.0 miles or 5.7 or 5.3. It's never under five and it's never over six. And I've stayed within that. Now, I've told you, if you were up there on Facebook this week, I shared some other stuff with you. I'm not going to share all that again. If you want that, go back up there and get it. That was on Tuesday. Put down your bullets and you can go find it if you want to. If you don't want to, then don't find it. But I, I stayed with it. Now, he, now what happened a couple of times, you know, Brother John, he said, he said to me, and he, I tell you, he's a good guy to, to run with. He, he knew Brother Hagen and was feeding off of his stuff before I even met him. Isn't that neat? How God just brought us together like that at a group outing. And he just brought us together. And he was just, uh, just had gotten into running. This a couple of years ago. Just had started getting into running. And when he first came out to the group, he wasn't keeping up with anybody. I probably didn't even notice him. And uh, after a while, we, we finally got wind of each other. Did I ever share that story with you? Did I ever share that? After a while, you know, we, we found out that uh, we were running. This is way back when Christian was here. Christian was here. And so sometimes, uh, you know, we were going out to the group room with him. And we'd see John, and if I could get Christian to, to follow some, some people, then I'd run with, up, up with John, because John had picked up speed and he was doing better. And uh, if not, then I'd just stay back, and Christian and I would run together. Uh, do, do one of that. But then after a while, Christian went away, and so then John and I were always running. And we would, we would push each other. You know, we'd, we'd look at it at the time and, and uh, push each other faster and faster and faster. And then all of a sudden, he moved from where he was, and he told me, where, where are you moving to? And he said, I'm moving over here. And it turned out to be a half mile from my house. So now we run all through the week. All I got to do is run over to his house, or he runs over to mine, and um, and then we take off. And you know, we sometimes talk some some Bible stuff. Sometimes we just run fast. We, it just uh, it, it all depends. But you see, I I let that. It, it, John didn't. Do, if I would have said no, I should stop at six, he would have stopped at six. Now, in the second time when I came back, and he said, "You want to go a little bit further." I mean, I said, I, I, this time I shared it with him. I didn't share it with him before. I said, John, in my spirit came this. See, I could do that with him. In my spirit came, I shared with him the same thing I shared with you. This, this is what came to me. And so this is what I'm staying with. Well, he did never, he never asked me again. <laughs> See, now he knew what kind of level it was on. So he never asked me again. But I put this in your, in your outline. Don't let me forget to get back to verse 8. Where do self-imposed boundaries come from? So I meditated on this for a little bit. To figure out where do we, where do they come from? One of the things is perceptions. Perceptions that we think others have of us. Sometimes, you know, if you're at work and you perceive that people don't think you're too strong in this area, you don't step out in it. If you perceive that people don't receive this from you, then you don't do it. If you perceive that they do, then you, then you do it. Perception sometimes will put limitations on us. 
Now that's bad because if God comes and speaks something to you and says, go out there and do this, but I feel in my perceptions that people aren't going to receive it, guess what? I can sometimes back off and I put my own limitations on myself. And I put a border even though God has said, go here. I've said, no, I can't get there. And I don't do it. Perceptions. What other people think of us. This can have an effect on what I do and how obedient I am to God. Now, I didn't put these in any order except that they spelled pigs. That's the only order I put them in. So you can put them in any order that you want to. Here's Here's the second one. Ignorance. Now, ignorance comes from, first off, I don't know because I haven't sought after God. God may have had a plan for me uh, in a particular area for a while, but I didn't seek after him to get it. And if I don't go after him to get it, I don't get it. I can be ignorant of a thing. So sometimes I see a boundary, I see a border, and I don't think I can get past it, but I haven't sought after God to see if I can. So ignorance is another one. Now here's the third one. This is the one we've been alluding to for a few weeks now. Guilt. I know you're all going to spell grief, weren't you? (laughs) Grief comes from loss. Like the loss of a spouse, from mother, father, something like that. Grief... Grief comes from any loss that we have. But the grief that comes from the loss of a spouse is different. Now see, I didn't realize this before. I didn't realize it, you know, because first off, I haven't gone through it. Glory to God. But you know, if you don't go through something, then you don't necessarily seek after God on it. But the grief that you have from a spouse is different from the grief you have from the passing of a mother, father, son, or daughter, something like that. And uh, this is what dropped down in my spirit about this. I had never thought about this, never, never seen it before. But when a spouse dies, this is a position that will likely be replaced or can be replaced. When your father or mother dies, there's no replacing that, is there? When, you, when a sister or brother dies, there's no replacing that, is there? When a son or a daughter dies, there's no replacing that. That son will always be your son. Daughter will always be your daughter. Sister will always be your sister. Brother always your brother. But when it comes to a spouse, this is probably the only death, death that would come into our lives in which a replacement can and very often is sought. Now here's the, the, and I'm not telling you if you if you've uh, been here and you you've lost a spouse, I'm not telling you to go out there and find one. <laughs> or if you're happy with how things are, just stay with with how things are. But this is something that we can do. I can't go out and seek for another mother, or father. No one can take that spot. So this makes the death of a spouse very unique. And so what happens in the death of a spouse? is uh, there are people who who go out there and replace them. Now, I remember one, and this, this clarity did not come to me because of this situation, 
But having this clarity, I can look back on this situation and, and think differently on it than I had. But maybe you've had this problem too. But we had a particular couple who was in the Rhema family. And they were in our, our region. And uh, we got to know them very well. In fact, some of the times we had gone out to some of the retreats and things, we had uh, conversations. Uh, uh, we, would, we would get different couples together because there's some of us that just we never tired of talking about the Word. And so I remember a couple of times that we would get together after the meetings were over, you know, 9, 9.30, something like that, the meetings would be over. And then we, uh, we would get together. The last time we had done it, we were all at the same uh, hotel that was, that was there. And so we just came on back and we took all the seats that were in the, in the uh, front area and we arranged them into a big circle so we could all talk with each other. And uh, one couple that we are probably particularly familiar, familiar with, uh, I sat next to his wife and he sat, uh, I'm not sure where he, he sat someplace else, but I would prefer to have sat next to him. His wife and I were a little bit like oil and water. <laughs> and she even made comment about that. But, you know, she was doing some stuff with me and she sat next to me. I guess we never sat next to each other. Most of the time we we're in the meetings. My wife sat next to her and Pete and I, we, we shouted each other from across the way. But one time I got in there and said, I'm sitting next to Pete. I don't care where y'all sit. So I sat next to Pete because <laughs> I, I enjoyed him. He was fun. And we would talk on the, each other on the, on the, the same, same kind of a language. And so we were sitting there. And so she was, she was sitting next to me. And so she just, I don't, she didn't know me real well. I'm, I'm sure of that because if she did, it wouldn't have surprised her. This probably won't surprise you at all. But she went up to me and she was talking about and she slapped me. So you know what I did? I slapped her right back. Absolutely. Just like Jim. Just slapped her right in the arm. She'd go, why'd you hit me? I said, why'd you hit me? So then she hit me again. You're saying she didn't. She did. I hit her back with equal force to what she applied. And I looked at her. Try it again, lady. And she didn't. But she did comment later on. She said, I can't believe you hit me. I said, well, don't hit me. But she, that's just the kind of personality she has. She's one of those people. I mean, she's fun. And she has a lot of enthusiasm for the word and stuff like that. But um, uh, if, if you give her an inch, she'll take it all. So I know that about her. I don't give it to her. So she never did sit next to me again. <laughs> I don't know that we had all that much opportunity. But anyway, I say all that... <laughs> Tell her get off on that. Um, <laughs> we we were sitting there, and this particular couple was in the group, and we we all loved them. Uh, they were just you know very much in love with each other, and you could see the fondness and affection they had. And so we were um, we were there in the group, and this is uh, you know I particularly remember this one because it was not not it was not long after this. I don't remember if it was a month, two months, or some kind of a short period of time. Uh, he had announced that his wife was sick with something that eventually killed her and took her life. And he was very broke up about it. He was very, very sad. And you could understand, you know, we all can understand that as well, that uh, that this really broke him up. It was not, and I, I did not record any of this. I don't know exactly. It wasn't six months later that up on Facebook appeared pictures of him and another woman. And they eventually got married and are very happily married, both in ministry and, and so forth. And you know what the first thing is that sometimes can come up on the inside of you when you see that? 
well, how much did they really love them? Because <laughs> how'd they go out there and replace them that, that quickly? You won't have that with any other relationship, will you? We had it with, uh, uh, this is many years ago, there was a, a woman who used to come out to church here and minister, and her husband would come with her. He didn't minister, but uh, he would always come with her, and so she would be ministering. And after a while, um, uh, we, we got word, we didn't, we didn't know when she, she had gotten sick, but she got sick and she died of this, this disease. So after uh, she had already been dead, he called us up and let us know what had happened. But we didn't know about it until, until it, was, it was all done. And so he called us up and let us know that was uh, that that was going on. And uh, I don't think it was more than a few months later. You know, he's all broke up about it, but I don't think it was more than a few months later. He called us up again to let us know that he found someone else and he was going to marry them. And he began to quote all these verses in Scripture. <laughs> and I just sat there and kind of just chuckled inside myself. And, you know, when... Whenever it is that we feel guilty about something, we always try and find justification for it. And I just kind of let it go with that and, 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 until I had this, this bit. Uh, what is the proper mourning period for a husband or a wife when their spouse dies before they go off and remarry? Anybody know? Nobody has any idea? Yeah, because there isn't one. Yeah, but how many of you, if a person remarries within a certain period of time, can think poorly of them? Now understand that the person who just lost their spouse probably had the same feelings of someone else. Can't believe they married so remarried so soon. So if they found somebody, and God brought them to somebody, could you see that they'd be having a struggle? The struggle is not with God. The struggle is with the body of Christ. How are people going to take this? How are people going to respond? And we feel guilt because we have grief for that person. But here there is, there's happiness. Now, is there any chance of that person coming back from the dead? Well, apparently in the Word of God up to four days, <laughs> right? And maybe there's some cases of, of something longer. But if that spouse has been dead for a month, is there any chance that that uh, spouse is coming back? No. No. Is there going to be anything gained by that person sitting around mourning? No. No. Except in our eyes. Oh, good. They're still sad. I mean, they must have really loved them. You see, sometimes we have put these boundaries on other people. And by us putting them on other people, we've also put them on ourselves if we were to lose a spouse. Because I feel like I can't move ahead. I can't go on to something else. So guilt can be something that we put boundaries on. Now, if you get into a situation where a spouse dies and God, God leads you into a path of someone else coming along, and if, if God's in it, then it's a good thing to follow because God's not going to take you down the wrong road, is he? And we have to make sure that we, we as uh, fellow Christians don't go trying to assume stuff and, and, and think stuff. 
but when a person comes in to take that position of wife or father, or I'm sorry, wife or husband, uh, there are there are some things that are going to have to be understood. First, the one who lost their spouse is going to have memories of them. And the, the person who's coming in, if they insist that you lose those memories, that's not right. I can have memories. And you just, you just go ahead and, and hang on to them. But then sometimes people make you feel guilty. Well, how can you hang on to those memories and still be in love with your new spouse? Now, there are some things that, uh, that we do have to let go of. And if a person, say that a, you know, a husband lost his wife, and if he uh, gets married, God leads him in a direction and gets married, and they, they, uh, they move in to wherever it is they're going, and he has all her old, the old wife's clothes. Well, you can see the problem in that, couldn't you? You have to let go of some of those, some of those things. But sometimes we don't let go of them because we feel guilty for it. And so I put a boundary. I can't get rid of that because if I get rid of that, that will seem like I, uh, I'm not that in love with my wife, my husband. And guilt will come in. You see how easy guilt is to come in? And when guilt comes in, it stops us. It's a barrier from me doing whatever God has said to do. So here's three things so far. Perceptions, ignorance, and guilt. Now that guilt mostly comes from what we think is in the mind of others. Sometimes we even put these things off on God. Or even their dead spouse. Well, God's looking down on this and God's not happy. Or what if my dead spouse is looking down on me and that's not going to happen. Your dead spouse, they're in heaven. They look down and they see anything going on. All they have is joy. They can't experience jealousy up there in heaven. The flesh is dead. It's not coming on. And if they're not in heaven, they can't see anyway. So, perceptions, ignorance, guilt. Let's get to the last one. Self-confidence. Self-confidence, if we, do, if we are not confident in what I am capable of doing, what the gift of God that is in me is capable of doing, then I will not step out beyond certain things. You can, uh, you know, if we are in the winter time months. How many of you have great self-confidence in you and your vehicle on the road? No matter what the weather. All right, a couple. Of, how many of you are a little, little squeamish about certain... How many, are, how many are squeamish about ice? How many are squeamish about snow? But if, you know, you'll, you'll find some people that if it's snowing, when can I go? When can I, when can I go? You just, uh, we just want to get on out there and to, and to roll. Self-confidence will give you uh, boundaries, won't it? If the ice falls, how many of you have set up a, ber- a perimeter around the doorway of your house all the doorways of your house, I will not venture out beyond that. You put at that boundary, right? No one else did it, you did it. Because I have no confidence in myself going out there. If I had confidence, I would go out there and I would do it. Some of you, uh, until they plow the roads, I'm not driving anywhere. I'm, I'm staying right here. 
So our self-confidence, or lack of self, self-confidence, has put boundaries up. If I can grow confident in the things that I'm doing, then my boundaries fall. And you'll see this constantly in the Word of God, where people were not confident in what they could do, and so their boundaries were set up. Remember Gideon? How much self-confidence did he have? How many boundaries had he set up for himself of what he could or could not do? And it was not by, by God. God did not say, you can't do this, you can't move out there, or it's dangerous for you to do so. He put those boundaries up himself because of his self-confidence. Now, you might be able to get into four other areas, or more areas than these four, but these four will surely uh, list out most of it. If you leave these things in the negative, it will keep you down and wallowing in the mud with the pigs. You don't need to be down in the mud with the pigs. You don't need to be like the prodigal son over there with the pigs. Get out from the pigs and move on. Let's go over verse 8 again. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So, look at this verse. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. How many times have we let other things come out of our mouth beside what's in the Word of God? We speak other things. I'm not saying that all you have to say is just quoted scripture. But a lot of times we speak things. Well, I don't think that'll ever get better. Which verse do you have in mind when you say that? Well, I don't think God really loves me or cares about me. And which particular verse do you have in mind when you're thinking that? When you're speaking that? You see how we can let slip what this verse says? How about we go up to people and we speak mean, hateful things? Have we not left the Word of God being in our mouth? Have when we speak things we're not believing the best in others? Have we not left speaking the Word of God? You want to make your way successful? Do what he says. This book of the law or the Word of God shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. I was just uh, listening to, uh, my wife was listening to it. I came into the room when she was, she had Brother Hagin on. And she was listening to him and I remember him teaching this. I remember him uh, speaking about it. But he said a, a, a woman came up to him, he was ministering to her, told her about this. And she said, oh, that's not possible. I can't meditate on the Word of God day and night. And he said, this came up in his spirit and he spoke it out to her. He says, why not? You're already meditating on other things. Mm. Yep. Brought me right on back to classroom when he was sitting there teaching that to us. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. One of the reasons we are not doing all that is written in the Word of God is it has left our mouth. We're not speaking it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That's the pathway. Speak the Word. Speak the things of the word. Don't get away from that. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Now we're back to that again. 
Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, how many of you remember last week when I told you about that quote, and I put that little thing in there in the bulletin? Ask me. You know, even after a salt meeting, and we had all that, there's only one person who, who sent me a message, said, hey, what's the rest of that quote? That was Nikolai. So I sent it to him. <laughs> Almost forgot. He, I saw he sent it to me at one point. I was, I was not where I could copy and paste it, and I forgot about it until later, but I sent it on over to him. But I put this quote in there from uh, uh, Brother Willie George. The effect of fear is far more dangerous than the feeling of fear. And just because you have the feeling of fear doesn't mean you have, have given yourself over to the effect of fear. I mean, you remember that. I love that quote. But you see, there was a second part to this. The second part is this. The effect of fear is when you put your weapons down and stop fighting. Hmm. Isn't that second part good? Yeah, you could have had it a week earlier. Would you turn over your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 16. 1 Samuel 13, verse 16. I looked this up in all my notes, and you, I was kind of surprised at this. You know, I've only taught on this particular battle once. One time that I can find. That was when we were doing our series on the book of Hebrews. So it was only about two years ago. Not even two years. But we're not going to go over all those details. If you want all the details on this battle and the things that are going on, go back and find that on the Hebrews, and uh, you can check it out. I, I, I forget which number it was. I did look it up. I did have the number down, but it went out of my head here uh, now, so I'm not exactly sure. But it was back when we were doing uh, chapter 11. I'm thinking 46, but I'm not positive. <clears throat> Verse 16, So Jonathan, the, his son, and the people present with them present with them, remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. Uh, were you able to pull that map up? Just, just, just get it ready here. We're going to show it to them in just a minute. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road to Oprah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road, the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. Now, we're setting the battle lines here. Now, you can pull that map up. And you, I just wanted to give you a visual. If you were here on the... Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> if you were... Uh, right there is where Israel is. That's in uh, Gibeah. And they had come from the area of Gilgal over there on the right. And when they came, Saul and Jonathan split up. So you can see where Jonathan is at. And you can see where Saul is at. And this is where they're going to attack from. They are greatly outnumbered. If you go back, this is where Paul or where Saul messed up and offered the sacrifice early because the people started to leave him and some of them began to hide in caves and they're going to come out later on. But he is greatly outnumbered in this battle. And to add to that, well, we're going to see that as we, we go on. The blue here is the Philistines. And you can see they came over to Michmash and from there they went out in three different directions. Beth Horon over there to the left. Oprah up in the uh, north. And then over there to the uh, east is number three. That's the third direction that they went to. This is where they had gone as raiding bands. They had a large mass of people, so they split it up because Israel was really no threat. All right, let's get back over here to verse 19. Thanks for that, Corey and Daryl. 
appreciate you finding that and pointing them out for me. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, and to set the points on the goads. So I, I, I think the price was high. Because I'm not exactly sure what that would be. So it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. So only Saul and Jonathan had the spear. Apparently there's two, I'm sorry, uh, sword. Only they have the sword. <clears throat> there are no blacksmiths. They, they took all the blacksmiths out. They were so afraid of these people that they made sure that they couldn't get any weapons. Now it doesn't, or it doesn't make sure they couldn't get close combat weapons. It didn't say no weapons at all. They had long range weapons. You can't stop them from making bow and arrows. And you can't stop them from making slingshots. And they had both of those things at their disposal. But slingshots and bow and arrows and anything else they would have with, uh, that would catapult, um, um, things a great distance. These are long distance weapons. Not close quarters. So they had long-range weapons, but they had nothing for hand-to-hand combat. If you're going to win a battle, you've got to win hand-to-hand combat. If you look at the armor described by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, you will see it. it's all about close combat. It doesn't deal with long-range weapons. It doesn't deal with bow and arrows. It deals with things that you, you work with in close combat. And so if you can't battle in close, you're going to lose the, you're going to lose the fight. Your sword of the spirit is meant for close battle. It's not meant for long range. Some people want to use the sword of the spirit for long range battle. See the enemy far away, I'll throw the word of God there at him. No, this is for close range stuff. When he gets right in your face, use the word. Verse 23, And the garrison of the Philistines went out to, to, the, to the pass of Michmash. So that's, uh, again, our map. We remember... That I just wanted you to get a, uh, a look-see at it anyway. Verse 1, chapter 14. Now it happened on uh, one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his, his father. Now it happened one day. They had been sitting around here for a little while watching all this take place. But one day they decided not to sit around and watch. One day they decided to get up and do something about it. How many times are we as Christians sitting around watching what the enemy is doing and not doing anything about it? I can see the enemy. I can see what he's doing. But I'm over here. How many of our own situations would we change if it would happen one day that we'd get off our our butts and do something? So he says, this is what Jonathan says. Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I'm sure if he's making a note that he did not tell his father, he thought his father would do something to discourage him. So this day could have remained an ordinary day, but instead they turned it into something extraordinary. How many of your ordinary days in life remain that way just because you didn't do what God said to do or God put down in your spirit, what God was igniting on the inside of you? 
If you can do those things, you can take an ordinary day and turn it into something. Verse 2. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men against a mass of people. So Saul's sitting under a tree. That's not the picture I have of a king. How about you? Getting ready for battle. A king getting ready for battle should not be sitting under a pomegranate tree. I guess he's eating pomegranates. I don't know. I guess it may have some good shade. Why get out there in the sun? Sit here underneath the shade. You don't need to have all those harsh things going on. Right? <laughs> Verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahidab, Ichabod's brother. How many of you remember Ichabod? Remember when Eli was the, was the high priest and he was told he was going to die? And he had his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were going to die? And when the word came back that the, the two sons died, the one son's wife was given birth. And she gave birth and named him Ichabod. The glory has departed. He shows up again. So Ahitab is Ichabod's brother. And he had a son named Ahijah, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli. The Lord's priest in Shiloh was wearing an ephah. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Because he didn't tell anybody. Now, verse 4, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines, <coughs> garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozez and the name of the other was Sena. Now, if you go back to the Hebrews, we got into more of those rocks and some things about them. I'm not going to uh, contend with that here today. <clears throat> but these were big enough rocks to have names. So, the front of one faced northward, opposite Michmash, the other opposite Gibeah. And you can see from the map the directions they would have been, been facing. The Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Well, that's a good attitude to have. No, he's not, he's not committing God to anything. He's not saying, It came up in my spirit to do this. He said, Let's just go over and see what we can do. And as we're getting over there, he said, let's go up to these uncircumcised. That's a good view to have. You can see why David took to this guy. It may be the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from delivering or from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. So how many people do they have going into this battle? Two. How many swords do they have? One. Because Saul has the other one. And they have two swords. The armor bearer commits to being by his side. Can you imagine what kind of an armor bearer this would be? See, Jonathan, he picks high caliber people to be friends with. He picked David. He picked his armor bearer. Doesn't need a whole lot of people in his life. But you see, he knows high caliber people when he sees it. And he'd rather talk to his armor bearer about going into this battle than his father, the king. 
Was that tell you? So verse 8, so Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. Now, um, well, verse, 10, verse 10, read that one. But if they say thus, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be assigned to us. Now it may be he already knows this territory pretty well. And he knows that they say come up, that there's a particular place he can execute this battle, and two people won't be that outnumbered. It will go well for just having two people. And he says, if they say, come on up here, they may be thinking, we'll have the advantage, but, but he's saying, no, we'll have the advantage. And if they say that, we'll know that God's behind us. If not, we'll just stay here. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. <laughs> I wonder if um, the writer here, Joshua, I wonder if he softened that any for us. Come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, because these are Philistines. These are not, um, these are not church going people here. Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into, into the hand of Israel. So he says, come on up after them. So Jonathan climbed up, verse 13, on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. Now, I, it doesn't tell us exactly how this went about, but I, my thought, the way I picture this, put it together, is that Jonathan has the sword. And he disables them with the hand-to-hand combat. But they're not quite dead. But they're disabled. And so then the other guy can come over and he can do whatever's necessary to make sure that they're, they're done. Whatever other things, whatever the weapon he's got. You know, if he has an arrow, if the guy's defenseless, just laying there, you can take that arrow and you can do something with it. And you can, uh, you can finish him off. Uh, at that point, I think he would take whatever sword this guy had. And then, now they probably have two. But there in the beginning, uh, don't, I, don't, I don't envision Jonathan going up with his bare hands and fighting this guy, though it certainly he could have. You have the Lord on your side, those kind of things can, can happen. Verse 14, the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within half an acre of land. Now, if you have been over to our house for a church picnic, if you picture our house and the backyard... Most people don't realize the backyard is there, but on the other side of the fence is the backyard. Our plot is said to be two-thirds of an acre. So if you reduce that and make it smaller than the lot that our house is on, that's a half acre. Over that span of uh, uh, area, they've killed 20 people. They have masses of people, hundreds of thousands, on the side of the Philistines. And they killed how many? Twenty. How much of a dent have they made? Not much at all. But look at verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth earthquaked. 
so that it was a very great trembling. Twenty people were killed. And the entire camp, those in the field, those among the people, the garrison, the raiders, trembled because of 20 people dying. Does that make sense to you? How many times has the enemy secured a small victory in our life? And it has caused us to panic and to do things outside of the Word of God. It has caused the Word of God to leave our mouth and for other things to fill it because of a very small victory that the enemy was able to gain. That's what it did here. Caused them to fear, tremble. And it said in verse 15, and the earth quaked so there was a very great trembling. Now, if you have the start of a battle and it just so happens that there's an earthquake then, who do you think might be behind it? Has, has the Lord been behind earthquakes before? Yes. Yeah, it's a number of different times. We even saw one uh, earthquake that had the localized effect of knocking off all the shackles and opening up all the prison doors. Well, that was it. Man, he can make some things quake and have some stuff go on. What happened when Jesus was crucified? Mm-hmm. What happens? What does the Lord say happens at the end, uh, at the end of the tribulation period? There's a great earthquake that splits the temple. When Christ comes down and returns, He comes down on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in half. Who do you think caused that one? So you see, when God moves, sometimes the earth quakes. Would God? have moved and the earth have quaked if Jonathan didn't step forward and achieved a very small victory of 20 people dying. But it had a ripple effect. Verse 16, Now the watchmen of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude melting away. Just kind of moving away from wherever the battle was. And they went here and there. They retreated. See, when you retreat, you just run for the hills. And if you remember that drawing, it was up there. It has them going out in a bunch, bunch of different directions. Verse 17. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. All right, we got a great victory going on. The enemy is melting away. And our fearless leader says, Let's take attendance. Call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now the reason that they're doing that is to seek after God. He has the ephod with them. Going to bring the ark of God here. Let's seek after God and see what we should do. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase so that Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What he's saying is, 
He came, brought out the priest, brought the ephod. Let's seek after the Lord and see what's going on. And when he hears all the commotion, the commotion begin to pick up and get louder. He says, stop seeking the Lord. Withdraw your hand. In other words, we don't need to hear what God says. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. See that? We don't need to seek after God. We're just going to go. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor and there was great confusion. Now, if every man's sword was against his neighbor, who had the swords? The Philistines. So because 20 people were killed, 20 out of hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of trained soldiers, all armed with shields, spears, and swords, going against an army that had two. And they lost 20. And they become so fearful that they start to kill themselves. And the individual just looking down there and says, man, look at that. They're all killing themselves. And Saul says, hey, we, we want to get in on this. Forget seeking God. Let's go down there into the battle. With all them people dying, there ought to be some extra swords around. Moreover, the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines before the time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they all joined the Israelites who were Saul and Jonathan. In other words, everybody who became afraid in the previous chapter and went in hiding said, you know what? Let's go. We're winning. Let's jump out there like we're winners. <laughs> so they joined the Israelites who were in with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them. So that's where you had that group coming in from the north in that picture that we saw. So they were attacking with these few people that they had from the south. Philistines were, were north of them. And then all of a sudden, all these people that were hiding, they came down. So they're kind of being outflanked. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now we're going to stop there. You can keep on reading sometime if you want and, um, and see what happens. But Saul messes up the rest of it too. But we don't have time to get into, into all that. But once the victory was assured, many people will come out of hiding. Once you start walking in victory, how many of y'all know there's people who want to join your, your side? But when it's looking grim and it's looking hard, a whole lot of people who want to fly the coop, want to leave, go over to something else. So I put this question for you here in your outline. What, what, what limitations have you imposed on yourself? Now getting past those, it can be difficult. But we won't even try if we don't think God's in it. If we think that God has put this limitation on me, I'm not even going after it. I've got to first of all understand what limitations I have put on my own life and what limitations God has set before me. Because God sometimes will throw some limitations at you. I was thinking uh, uh, 
story that Brother Hagin told. I'm sure he's taught this other places. I just remember when he taught to us when we were in school. And he said that sometimes he was going through and just uh, doing stuff. And I, I think he drank coffee. If not, it was tea. But he said the Spirit of God came up to him and said, lay off the coffee or, and or tea. I know he liked tea. They said, just lay off that for a while. And so he, he, this is his words that he spoke to us. He says, I didn't know what the reason was. I just figured maybe I didn't need the caffeine. But whatever it was, he just stopped doing it. He didn't ask for an explanation. He just quit. And then he said, after a while, God said, go ahead, you can drink it again. And he went back and he, and he did. Now, that, that happened a few times in his life. Never got an explanation. Never asked for one. Sometimes God will sometimes put a limitation on you and say, don't do this for a little time. But then that limitation may come off. Now, when we break out of those limitations, when we have set limitations ourselves, and when we come to that place of breaking out past it, it will produce fear in your life. I've not gone there. I've not done that. I'm not... uh, uh, we'll give you a, an example. I'm sure that this is one. How many of you have a limitation in your life in the area of picking up spiders? How many will not pick up a spider? A lot of liars in the congregation right here. How many of you will pick up a spider? Uh, I knew Miss Sharon was going to be raising her hand. She's going to be picking up snakes. She's going to be picking up spiders. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of spiders that are out there. I mean, there are some spiders I won't pick up, but, you know, if there's a daddy long linger, I know they creep a lot of people out. And actually, a daddy longlinger has enough poison to kill you. I don't know if you know that. You could die from a, uh, from a daddy longlinger, from the poison that they have. Uh, very easily. Actually, the poison that's in one little daddy longlinger can kill a couple of people. The problem is their fangs can't get through your skin. So they're harmless to you. But they could kill you if they could bite you. <laughs> they just don't have the fangs that are enough to get through your Get through your thick skin. But I'll sometimes pick them up. And, you know, they're just little light little things. And, uh, but it, it can freak some people out. What if the Spirit of God came upon you and said, I want you to go out and to pick up a spider. You got, I'm not saying that God would ever waste his time telling you that. <laughs> I'm just saying, if God ever spoke that to you, how many of you all know in yourself it would create a fear in, obe- in obeying what he said? I get to pick up that spider. Now, anybody here have anybody ever held a tarantula? You, if you did, you would understand why people keep them as pets. They're kind of cool. They're really kind of cool. Um, but anyway, and, and people do. Uh, I know the one pet shop I was at. They actually just ignited their whole, moved out of the saltwater fish completely and opened up a whole spider section. People come on in and buy tarantulas. I never bought a tarantula, not planning on buying a tarantula. But uh, apparently some people do really like that. But if God spoke that to you, and in order to be obedient, you had to go out and do that, you would, you could see it would create some fear on the inside to get past that limitation. God never told you thou shalt not pick up spiders. That's a limitation that you have put on yourself. I will not. How many have ever said, I shall not <laughs> pick up a spider? I'm not going to do it. And we, we stay away from them. 
But if God were to come and to say that, you could tell, even though you have the word of God on it, how many of you know there would still be some fear? Whenever God speaks something to you to get you past a border that you have self-imposed, it very often will create fear. Fear can create paralysis. With most of the children of Israel, fear had so gripped them in this battle that they were either hiding in caves, gone away, fled, and the ones that were still there were petrified about going down in the battle. Fear kept them from doing anything. Jonathan, we don't know that he had a word from God. We just know that he said, you know what? I'm kind of tired of sitting here. I got a sword. Let's go. The Lord can deliver by many or he can deliver by few. But breaking out of your limitations, it's going to produce some fear. Because there are some limitations that we have, have done ourselves. Just take a, take a look at that marriage example we gave you. Say that uh, the husband or wife... Uh, their, their spouse died and say that the word of God came to them when they met somebody that's, that's one for you I want you to marry them how many of you know that can create some fear on the inside of them because of how people will respond now don't allow minor setbacks either like small victories against you to become big ones because if these Philistines had actually kept things in perspective, they wouldn't have panicked. They wouldn't have started killing each other. They wouldn't have given the children of Israel so many swords and so many weapons. And they wouldn't have had all these problems that they had. You have been equipped. You have been made for short-range battles. Not long-range ones. Don't be getting up in the top of mountains and start praying against principalities and powers. You're not called to battle long-range. You're called to battle... Close combat. Long range, you don't use shields of faith. You don't use swords of the Spirit. Long range, you don't need the helmet of salvation or the shoes of peace. You need them when you're in close and battling. You have been equipped for short range battle. The enemy knows this about your weapons, which is why he loves to get you involved in the long range warfare. Because you're not equipped for that. He needs to get you out of short range and he needs you to put down your armor. Remember that quote from Willie George? Don't put down your armor. Don't stop the battle. You don't need to be doing it. What kind of self-imposed limitations have you put on yourself? What kind of things have you said, well, I can't get into that area. I can't do that. Well, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Well, I cannot do this. God doesn't do this. And I don't think that this... We have all these limitations. You'd be surprised at how many self-imposed limitations are on your life. And you just operate within them. I just don't go over there. How long did Israel live in the promised land and just know that Jerusalem was a place we don't go? Until David came along. And David said, you know what? I don't like this idea. We don't go there. I want to go there. And he went over there and he took the city. There's a lot of self-imposed things that we have put in our life and it's simply because the enemy has come and he's fanned to a flame the fears that are in our life. And we've erected certain borders, certain boundaries, and I won't go past them. And if God says, Steve, I want you to go out here and I want you to do that, 
fear comes up on the inside of me. I can't go talk to a stranger. I can't go over there and minister, lay hands on that one over there. And fear comes up on the inside of me. And it keeps me in my boundaries. In the place where I'm not, I feel like I'm not supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be over there, so I'm going to stay out of it. But see, we get so used to that fear and that thing dominating us that we won't let God break us out. There are some things that are wrong in your life, some things that are giving you problems in your life. And in order to overcome it, you're going to have to break some of these boundaries. And God will begin to say some things to you to help you get past it. Steve, you need to do this. You need to step out and begin to do this. You said you can't do it, but you can do it. But you can. What are the boundaries that you have set up in your life? Would you all stand up with me? God will help you shake them. But you've got to be a willing participant. You've got to be somebody who says, God, if you tell me to go out there, I'll do it. You've got to be like Jonathan. He doesn't say, that's where the Philistines are. This is where I am. I'm staying here. They're staying there. He says, that's where they are. I think I'll just go over to them. Perhaps the Lord will move on me. What is the Lord prepared to move on in your life? Think of this in this way. How many of you had a fear when you were younger? You can raise your hand on this. How many of you had a fear when you were younger about driving a car? I mean, when you were 13, 14, 15, and you knew you'd have to get behind the wheel, you were just, I mean, you were, you were looking for, I want, I want to be able to drive, but mm, you get behind there and your, your palms got sweaty. You, you start to going down the road and you're going, a whole 20 miles an hour and it feels really fast. But then after a while, you got comfortable. And then pretty soon, 40, 45. And pretty soon, mom and dad are saying, slow down. Slow down. Why? Because you got comfortable. But you see, if you never did break the barrier that fear kept you out of, you wouldn't be driving the car. Some people have fear of planes. And all they would do is travel where they could get to. On a bus, a train, or a car. But one day, some persons decided to get free of that. And they were nervous. They were scared. But they got on the plane to go where they had to go. And then pretty soon they were able to fly anywhere they had to go. But you see, that was a self-imposed boundary. And when they crossed it, it caused all kinds of fear. But once they shattered it, once they got past it, it opened them up to all kinds of things. So your Heavenly Father knows what your self-imposed boundaries are keeping you from. And He wants you to expand your borders. To go all the different places that He has said. Go all the different, see all the different things. To do all the different things. What's he got for you? Father, we thank you that you have great plans for us. You have places to take us and things 
you want us to do. Sometimes we have our own boundaries we have set up. Things we have imposed upon ourselves and we said, I can't do that. Can't get out there. And sometimes those boundaries are okay. They're not going to keep us from doing what God said to do. Just keeps us maybe from doing some fun things. Some things we might enjoy. But when those self-imposed boundaries keep us from obeying God and doing what we're supposed to do, they're a stronghold that needs to be torn down. I thank you that you have given us the weapons to do that. And the ability to overcome the fear that the enemy works in our life. And I thank you that overcome we shall. I thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brother Keith.